One of our members texted me last week and he said, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the Ascension. And I got to thinking, well, I've never preached a sermon on the Ascension. And I'm curious, how many of you can recall a sermon on the Ascension? Okay, a couple, three, four, five, six, all right. Sounds like we need a sermon on the Ascension before we go back to John's Gospel. All right, so let's turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, Jesus has been crucified, and Jesus is now resurrected. Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he explains how the whole Old Testament pointed straight to him. Would you notice then how Luke's gospel ends? Look at the final paragraph, beginning with verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, And we're continually in the temple blessing God. Now we have just come through another Easter season. And two weeks ago I preached on the cross. Last Sunday we heard from Dr. Pettit and he preached on the resurrection. Well, is that the end of the story of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth? Let's take a week and just really consider what happened next. But to understand what happened next, we need to have a correct view of Easter. As a child, I remember Easter being a very special Sunday where my sisters wore frilly white hats and little dainty gloves. My brothers and I wore little coats with these little annoying clip-on ties. My mother insisted on pictures after the service, and I wasn't allowed to run around and scuff up my pants. And we had to keep those nice clothes on through the Sunday afternoon meal and practice good manners. And unlike Christmas, Easter did not involve presents under the tree. My grandparents sometimes sent chocolate Easter bunnies, but when you bit into them, they were hollow. (laughs) Like, what's up with that? And Easter always fell on a Sunday. Like, why would you have a holiday on the weekend? Like, you don't get any time off of school. Like, what's the point? Theologically, I viewed the resurrection as the kind of uh, postscript, if you will, to the more, more important message of the cross. Easter was the epilogue of the story of Jesus, the story of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. Friends, as I've mentioned before, Easter is no epilogue. Every sermon in Acts mentions Easter, mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why did the disciples suddenly go out preaching as if the world had changed dramatically? Why did they insist the power structures of the universe had been permanently altered? The disciples saw a body return from the grave. And they saw that same body ascend into the clouds. 
But somehow they came to understand the world will never be the same. Robert Raymond, in his Systematic Theology, writes of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the scriptures virtually exhaust available triumphalist language, images, and metaphors to describe the significance of Christ's ascension. Don't treat the ascension as the final paragraph in the Easter epilogue of the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. Now, truth be told, Luke's gospel does seem to end that way. His final paragraph is almost anticlimactic, is it not? Jesus just simply goes back to heaven. The disciples go back to the temple. And sometimes it feels like we are right now experiencing a hiatus between two comings. And in the meantime, the world has just sort of gone back to normal. That's often how we think about reality. If there is indeed a second volume of the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, it will be written sometime in the future. Friends, that is a grave misunderstanding of Easter and the Ascension, no pun intended. C.S. Lewis has rightly said, we also in our heart of hearts tend to slur over the risen manhood of Jesus. To conceive him after death is simply returning into deity. So that the resurrection would be no more than the reversal or the undoing of the incarnation. That's how we often think, and that's totally wrong. The resurrection eternalized the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. And at the ascension, God put a man in permanent authority over all creation. A man. A resurrected second Adam ascended to exercise true dominion, not only over earth below, but heaven above. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus claimed. And then he went right up to the clouds to a throne. Friends, the second volume of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth is being written right now. And to see it, let's turn to Acts chapter 1. And let's notice how the second volume begins. Acts chapter 1. Now, whereas Luke's first volume ended with the ascension, and it was almost anticlimactic, Luke wants us to understand the story of Jesus of Nazareth did not end with the period at the end of Luke 24, 53. Would you notice how volume 2 begins? This is Luke writing. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, notice the next word, began to do and teach. The first book is the Gospel of Luke, or by extension, Matthew, Mark, and John. That's the first volume, the Gospels. And in Luke 1, and verse 3, Luke addresses his Gospel to a man named Theophilus. Now Luke writes a second book to the same man. And notice, the first book 
was merely a record of what Jesus began. Luke is what Jesus began to do and teach. Well, where's the rest of the story then? Answer, the book of Acts. And understand that Acts has never been finished. It ends abruptly, final verse, with the proclamation of the kingdom penetrating Rome, but still eager to find the ends of the earth. The whole history of Christianity is volume two. Church history is the record of the resurrected and exalted Christ continuing incarnation in his people as they carry the message of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Now keep reading. Verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus resurrected, and he confirmed his resurrection over a 40-day period. And Jesus went right on just preaching the same great theme he had been preaching before he died, namely the kingdom of God. In Matthew 4 and verse 17, Matthew summarized Jesus' whole preaching ministry throughout Galilee with these words. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus preached. The kingdom has come. So Jesus resurrects and he just goes right on preaching the kingdom, a theme he had earlier commissioned his disciples to preach right up to the ends of the earth. And Jesus also reminded those apostles of the coming of the Holy Spirit, a theme that he develops further in verses 4 through 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, the promise of the Father is the coming Holy Spirit. In the upper room, Jesus promised another comforter would come. And he would encourage those disciples in their kingdom preaching efforts. And Jesus explained that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will not have his own independent agenda. Not at all. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will bear witness about me. He would equip the apostles to preach Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. He would help the disciples remember everything that Jesus had told them. Bring back to memory everything I've said to you. He would enable those disciples to abide in Jesus Christ. And he would go out and he would begin convicting the world of their sin of disbelief in Jesus. So the Holy Spirit was going to come along and really confirm the message of Jesus Christ. So keep reading, verse 6. So when they had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, friends, the second volume is all about Jesus. It is time for his disciples to abandon their overheated aspirations to see Israel's liberation. Make Israel great again. That was their agenda. Miga. But Jesus' agenda is very different. You need to spread my name to the ends of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my mission. Got it? Now, observe a very important truth. Whereas volume one of the life and times of Jesus the Messiah ended with the ascension, that was Luke, volume two now is going to begin with the ascension. What we're about to read is foundational not only to the remainder of the book of Acts, but to the rest of the New Testament and the whole of church history. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that is in a body as you saw him go into heaven. Now, if you were standing there that day, you would see a man suddenly rise up from the earth and disappear into the clouds you would see a couple angelic beings appearing as ordinary men and claiming that Jesus would come back the same way. He'd just come back in a body. But friends, is that all there is to it? Like, we can get on with our lives now and someday Jesus will come back. Is that all there is to it? Well, actually, I want to know what happened on the other side of those clouds. Did the universe somehow change? Here's what Robert Raymond said. The scripture is virtually exhaust available triumphalist language, images, and metaphors to describe the significance of Christ's ascension. Well, right now, this seems pretty ordinary. To understand what happened next, we need to recall a prediction in Daniel chapter 7, a prediction that I have referenced repeatedly. And I told my wife this week I was going to preach in the ascension, and she said, I know you're going to reference Daniel 7. Somebody's been listening. Well, Daniel 7 is really important because it tells us what happened on the other side of the clouds. Listen to what Daniel saw. You're welcome to turn if you want, but I'll read this. Daniel 7 and verse 9. As I look, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Daniel looks up into heaven and he sees the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, sitting on a flaming throne. It moves in these great, big, burning wheels of fire. He is surrounded by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of angelic beings. And there's this liquid river of fire that flows from his throne. And then Daniel continues, I saw in those night visions 
And behold, this is verse 13, with the clouds, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. The son of man was Jesus' favorite self-designation. He referred to himself as the son of man. And notice this, he came. Came with the clouds. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one which shall not be destroyed. Again, did you notice the clouds? What's on the other side of those clouds? The Son of Man comes to a throne to receive dominion over all nations, peoples, and languages. And I want to know, has that happened? And the answer is yes, emphatically yes. At the resurrection, Jesus claimed all authority. Where? In heaven and on earth has already been given to me. Now, you might be asking, did Jesus receive all authority at the resurrection or at the ascension? Well, in one sense, these are really two phases of the same event. There were, of course, 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. But the ascension is a kind of ceremonial installation of an already existing reality. The ascension is like an inauguration ceremony for someone who's already become king. You know, when a king dies, the successor becomes king, and later on there's an inauguration ceremony. That's what the ascension is. It's a ceremony for a man who has already been given all the authority at his resurrection. The ascension was a declaration, even to those angelic beings, that God has put a new man in charge of the universe. Where Adam failed to exercise dominion over the earth, a second Adam has come to rule the nations forevermore. And even those angelic beings are to bow their knee to the Son of Man, to the second Adam, now resurrected. And with that in place, let's think our way back into the New Testament now. Do you recall what Jesus said in Matthew 26 at his second trial before the Sanhedrin? Here's what he said. He said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus was claiming at his trial the imminent and permanent fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. They are about to murder him, and Jesus claims his imperishable right to rule all the nations when? From now on. So when you launch into the book of Acts, the first chapter of volume 2 of the life of times of Jesus of Nazareth, you're reading about the from now on. Jesus' followers suddenly began to figure it all out. Oh, from now on, the Son of Man is at the right hand of power, and he comes in the clouds of heaven. This is a permanent New reality. That's why Stephen looked up on the heaven and saw him right there. There he is, right there at the right hand of God. They're figuring it all out. And that's how you have to read the rest of the New Testament. 
For instance, go forward one chapter to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Of course, I don't know where you are now. You're in Daniel 7 or Matthew 26. Wherever you are, let's go to Acts 2. All right? In Acts 2, we find Peter preaching at Pentecost. And have you ever wondered why Peter preached from the prophet Joel? when he defended the apostles speaking the gospel in multitudes of tongues at Pentecost? When you first read Peter's sermon, it's a little bit difficult to make out why he's quoting Joel. So, let's look at verse 16. Defending Pentecost, Peter says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, which begin with the resurrection... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now that much I can understand, but keep reading. Why does, why does Peter quote this part of Joel? And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, what's that all about? Well, clearly the message of Jesus has suddenly overcome linguistic barriers. The gospel of the kingdom is for all peoples, tribes, and tongues. Pentecostal tongues prove that much. That's the easy part. But what about this cosmic language of the sun's fire being snuffed out and the moon becoming a ball of blood? Somehow or other, we have to connect Joel's prophecy to Jesus of Nazareth, because that's exactly what Peter is doing. Look at verse 22. Here's the connection. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus' brutal death, his resurrection, and his triumph over the grave is somehow, all of that, connected to Joel's prophecy. And so, too, was the ascension. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted, that's the ascension, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seen and hearing. So Peter claims the death, the resurrection, and now the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus to God's right hand is indeed what triggered the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's what Joel predicted But again, what about this strange language? The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Somehow, Peter's quoting all that and he's saying, okay, 
This is fulfilled. Joel is fulfilled. Well, when you see that kind of cosmic language, can we call it that cosmic language? We need to read that language the way the Old Testament uses that language. So would you listen to how Isaiah described the fall of Babylon? Babylon fell centuries ago. Isaiah 13.10, describing Babylon, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. That refers to the end of Babylon. Listen to Isaiah describe God's judgment on the nations. Isaiah 34 and verse 4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. Or listen to how Ezekiel describes the fall of Egypt's Pharaoh. In Ezekiel 32 verse 7. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. And will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you. Friends, the Old Testament uses this language to describe periods of major political upheaval. It describes the fall of old powers and the rise of new powers. The toppling of empires and the dethronement of kings. It describes major transition moments in human history. And Peter at Pentecost recognizes that enormous changes have been introduced by the resurrection and now the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Peter himself heard Jesus predict the destruction of Jerusalem using very similar language. Describing the fall of Jerusalem, Jesus said, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. Now, friends, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I do not believe that Jesus is referring to literal stars falling to a literal planet Earth. Even those interpreters who pride themselves on taking the most literal interpretation possible never get around to actually interpreting these verses literally. The sun is 93 million miles from the earth. If the sun moved even 2% closer to us, we would be incinerated. Just 2%. The sun is 100 times wider than the earth. And it's an average-sized star. It's 100 times wider than the earth. How do you get something that big and lots of something that big falling to the earth? I actually don't know of any interpreters who say, yeah, literal stars actually come down and strike planet earth. I've actually never seen an interpreter say that. God, my friends, is the creator of literary devices and symbolic language. And who are we to tell him he cannot use it? Jesus, I believe, is using cosmic language to describe the imminent collapse of Jerusalem. I remember reading a commentary in Acts many years ago by a respected interpreter, and he said, well, when you look at Peter's sermon here, he was simply mistaken 
in his claim that Joel was fulfilled at Pentecost. And I want to say, seriously? I mean, you mean to tell me that the Holy Spirit came like a rushing mighty wind and he filled Peter to preach in these different languages and to preach the inaugural sermon in church history and he just got it all wrong? This doesn't reflect negatively on Peter. It reflects negatively on the Holy Spirit. Friends, Joel was fulfilled at Pentecost because Peter said it was. When Jesus resurrected from the grave and he ascended to heaven, friends, the power structures of the planet were permanently altered. There's no going back. And would you look at Peter's explanation in verse 36 for what's really happening here? Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, therefore know for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word Christ, as you know, is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. It refers to an anointed one, a king. And throughout the Gospels, and I preached a sermon on this a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, you have all this discussion about the Christ. Lots of discussion about whether Jesus might be the Christ, whether he might be the Messiah. But they don't understand the mission of Jesus Christ. And Peter, on one occasion, claims that Jesus is the Christ, and he proceeds to completely misunderstand Jesus' mission. You're never going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, die, and resurrect. That'll never happen to you. And curiously, no one in the Gospels ever refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ. You know this? Read the Gospels, aside from the introductions where they introduce Jesus Christ. No one actually calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. But at Pentecost, Peter suddenly just puts it all together. God made Jesus Christ. He made him king. When did he do that? Well, verse 32, he raised up Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus was exalted or ascended at the right hand of God. When that happened, that was God making Jesus the Christ. When God raised Jesus from the dust of the earth and exalted him right through those clouds to a throne in the heavens, he was making Jesus the Christ, Jesus Christ. Jesus being made Christ was far superior to even David's being anointed Christ. David's being anointed king. That's what a king was. He was an anointed person, a Christ. And that's why Peter quotes David in verse 34. For David did not ascend to the heavens. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yeah, David was a great king. David was a Messiah. David was a Christ. But David was never just lifted up from a tomb and exalted right through the clouds to a throne with all of his enemies under his feet. David dealt with enemies for the duration of his life. Peter claims that God has already exalted Jesus as the Christ, the ruler of all nations, the subduer of all of his enemies at his ascension. Now, I know you're thinking, okay, he still has some work to do to subdue everything. That's true. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. But Psalm 2, the decree that God made to anoint his son, that was fulfilled at the ascension. So again, friends, if we stood there in Bethany... 
and we watch Jesus just disappear up into the clouds, we, we would see a body just lifting off the earth. But don't think of the ascension as a sort of passive return to glory. That's not what happened. Peter uses the cosmic language of Joel to help us understand what really happened. The ascension disrupted the power structures of the whole universe. Friends, Jesus has the power to blot out the glory of the sun and the glory of empires. He has the power to cast stars to the earth and topple kings from their thrones. He has the power to hollow out the moon and to extinguish the glory of Pharaoh. This is why Psalm 2 says, Be wise, O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun. God has already decreed that Jesus is king. So again, in the words of Robert Raymond, the scripture is virtually exhaust available triumphalist language, images, and metaphors to describe the significance of Christ's ascension. And so let me just read you a few more passages to really illustrate what Raymond means. For instance, Ephesians 4 and verse 8, Paul writes this, When he ascended on high, he led a host captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who had descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens and he might fill all things. Well, Paul is using here the language of a military procession where a conquering general would just ride into Rome with a train of captives strung out behind him. Jesus' ascension, that's what he's talking about, the one who ascended on high, Jesus' ascension was a victory declaration over all of his enemies. The one who descended to the earth in his incarnation is the one who ascended with all of his enemies, strung out, all of his enemies strung out behind him. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen to what Paul told the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What kind of death? Even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is not referring, friends, to some future exaltation, but to a current exaltation. He uses the aorist tense in Greek, which communicates a present reality. God gave a name that is above every name. Well, what's the name? It's the name that every tongue will finally confess, Jesus Christ. God made Jesus, Jesus Christ, and raised him from the dust to a throne in the heavens. Listen to what Hebrews says in chapter 1. The author says, In these last days God has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Well, when exactly did God appoint Jesus heir of all things? 
Well, the author's emphatic. You just keep reading. After making purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Friends, that happened at the ascension of the forest out of the clouds. The author claims that Jesus has already been exalted above the angels. He goes on to say, having become, this is an existing reality, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And what's the name? It's the name Jesus Christ. So from Peter's Pentecost sermon forward, where Peter claims that God made Jesus Christ, by my rough count, there are more than 200 instances in the New Testament where those two words, Jesus and Christ, are put together indissolubly. Jesus Christ. People don't call him that in the Gospels. But from Pentecost forward, guess what? He is Jesus Christ. If you look at the first sentence of Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 and 2 John, Jude, and Revelation. Guess what? You will find a reference to a man named Jesus Christ. And friends, that's just the first verse of those books. Jesus was declared to be the Christ when God raised him from the dust of the earth and exalted him to a throne at his own right hand. So, that's what the ascension is really all about. And what does it mean for us? Well, the book of Acts, friends, is merely, as I said, the first chapter in the history of the church, which is the history of Christ's continuing incarnation in his people. Kind of makes you want to take a course in church history, doesn't it? I was expecting more enthusiasm for that. No, okay, okay. Well, friends, we, we, we live... You understand this. We live inside volume two of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. That's where we live. The story of Jesus of Nazareth is being worked out in our daily lives. Marriages, vocations, ministries, schooling. And that's why Paul writes in Colossians 3, we looked at this just last Wednesday, since you have been raised with Christ, Seek those things which are above. Where? Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's the ascension. You two were raised with Christ. And Christ is already exalted right there to Christ, God's right hand. So what does this mean for you? Well, listen to what Paul tells the Colossians. Here's what it means. If Christ is exalted, then you put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Christ is raised, now put those things to death. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Sometimes we think about Christian living as sort of detached from the life of Christ. Not at all. He's resurrected, he's ascended, he's right there at the right hand of God. And that means that we ought to put off all these earthly deeds and live like Christ. But you say, well, what if I fail? What if I just can't do this? What if I just slip back into sexual immorality or impurity or anger or lying? Well, 
I've got some really good news for you. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is what's happening in the volume two of the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. He has already died. He's already resurrected. He's already ascended. And in volume two, he is right there at God's right hand and he is making intercession for his bumbling, stumbling, backsliding saints. Friends, do you realize that you, you actually have the most powerful intercessor in the universe advocating on your behalf? He's like right there, like God's right hand. That's where he went to advocate on your behalf. But wait, how do we explain the continuing presence of evil in the world when Christ has been exalted to rule the nations? There's a whole lot of evil in our world. Well, friends, you've got to understand that God never promised that Jesus would immediately overcome all of his foes. Psalm 2 tells us that God appoints his son to rule the nations, but he has to break them with a rod of iron. And he does afford them time to repent and to serve the Lord with fear before his wrath falls. And Paul tells the Corinthians that Jesus will just go right on reigning. 1 Corinthians 15, he will continue to reign. This is an ongoing affair. He will continue to reign until when? Until all of his enemies are finally subdued. That implies this may take some time. So here we live in the sort of already not yet. And how do we account for evil in the world? Well, would you just, would you just look at one example? Would you skip ahead to Acts 7 now? Acts 7. And let's think about an evil that's happened in the, in the world in the aftermath of Pentecost. Imagine the rulers of the world have come for you. And they've got these great big stones And they intend to throw you outside the city and to crush you with these stones. I mean, just to splatter your brains on the pavement. To crush your lungs. Does the Son of Man, exalted to his throne, even notice? Yes. Look at verse 55. But he, that is Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And notice what else he saw. There's Jesus standing at the right hand of God as if he stepped up from his throne. He's waiting to welcome Stephen home. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man, he's standing right there at the right hand of God. And Stephen died with this glorious vision. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, ascended to the right hand of God. But isn't all this unjust? I mean, Stephen shouldn't have gotten martyred. Yes, of course it's unjust. But you've got to remember that Jesus' first concern is not to immediately right all the wrongs in the world. His first concern is not to restore the kingdom of Israel, as his disciples thought. Nor is his first concern to make America great again, or any other nation for that matter. 
His first concern as the resurrected Christ is that his gospel, the gospel of his kingdom, be advanced by the power of his Holy Spirit in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what he decreed just before he ascended. That's his mission. And he ascended to a throne, and even now he advocates for us, and he advances his agenda among the nations of the earth. And if that means martyrdom for Stephen, then so be it. But friends, that is not the end of the story of Stephen. Listen to this. In chapter 11 of Acts, Luke tells us in verse 19, And those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They persecuted Stephen, they scattered, and went everywhere preaching the gospel. And friends, that great church at Antioch, that was founded by Christians scattering from the stoning of Stephen, would soon lay hands on the man responsible for the death of Stephen. And they would ordain Paul to preach Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. When Jesus sits on his throne, there is always more to the story than first meets the eye. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is now ascended We thank you, Lord, that he is at your right hand. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would come to him as our advocate. And, Lord, that we would just confess our sins once again and live out the reality that Jesus Christ is alive. And he has not passively returned to glory, but he is exalted on a throne over all things. We give you thanks for Christ. And may we remember these words as we go throughout our week. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.